Welcome to the January 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook, and in this episode, we're going to start off the new year and this new decade by celebrating the 20th anniversary of Family Tree Magazine with its original editor, David Frixell. And he's got some timeless tips he's going to share for really good genealogical research. Diane Southerd is back, and this time joining me for a discussion of JetMatch in the DNA Deconstructed segment. And Sonny Morton's going to be here with some great websites that can help you plan your next family reunion. As always, we have a lot to cover, so let's kick things off in the Tree Talk segment. This month in the Tree Talk segment, David Frixell, author of the new book, Family Tree Scandinavian Genealogy Guide, How to Trace Your Ancestors in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, shares how he tracked down his ancestor in Swedish household examination books. How did I discover what became of my third great-grandmother? Well, it started with realizing she didn't die when I thought she did. That's a good lesson in always questioning your assumptions. Maya Kaisa Nils' daughter born in Sweden in 1809, married Peter Jansson in 1832. Several years later, I found his 1870 estate inventory index entry, describing him as widower. So, Maya must have died before her husband, a fact I dutifully noted in my tree. When I recently revisited that branch, another good genealogical practice, I couldn't find Maya in Sweden's well-preserved church death records. Weird. So I looked up her husband's last entry in the church household examination books, which are much like an annual census. And sure enough, his 1870 death was noted. Maya was listed below him, but without a death date, even though this page covered 1866 to 1870. So maybe she wasn't dead by 1870 after all. Sure enough, tracking down the actual estate inventory, rather than relying on transcriptions, another smart practice, it looked like the word was Anka which means widow, referring to her instead of him. Oops. But if Maya wasn't dead, where was she? Searches in My Heritage's recently updated collection of Swedish household examination books failed to find her. Spelling variations of her name or birthplace might be to blame. So I tried another go-to genealogy strategy, searching for relatives, in this case her children who'd stayed behind in Sweden, unlike my great-great-grandmother. I couldn't find her son. Thanks to Sweden's tradition of married women keeping their maiden names, however, I could search for her daughter, Carolina Pear's daughter. I quickly found Carolina and her family in the book beginning with 1871. Scrolling down the page, always look at the whole page and maybe the pages on either side, I spotted the missing Maya a few lines down, very much alive. In fact, as the quest for Carolina's entries for the following years revealed, Maya didn't die until June 19, 1887 living all the while near or with her daughter's family. If questioning assumptions and revisiting sources could solve that mystery, what about Maya's missing birth record? I had previously noted a failure to find it in the Cristo Parish, where the household book said she was born on June 26, 1809. I looked again and found a birth record on that date for Maria Katrina, daughter of Nils Olofsson and something illegible, making her surname Nils' daughter. Well, FamilySearch has a helpful list of interchangeable Swedish first names as part of its wiki if you look up Sweden. Maria and Maya, it turns out, are interchangeable. 
ditto for Katrina and Kaisa. So this was my ancestor after all. I now had her birth record and the correct date of her death, as well as her father's name. Next, I can start hunting for her mother's hard-to-decipher name and other records. When I'm due, I'm going to question any assumptions and check everything twice. There were a lot of great tips and lessons in that story. Thank you so much, David. And if you're on the hunt for Scandinavian ancestors, David's new book can absolutely help. It's called The Family Tree Scandinavian Genealogy Guide, How to Trace Your Ancestors in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. Just head to the show notes for this January 2020 episode at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts to order your copy. And stay tuned because coming up next, David's going to be back with more of his top genealogy research tips. Back in the year 2000, Google was just a startup. And 16-year-old Mark Zuckerberg hadn't even invented Facebook yet. And genealogy websites like MyHeritage and Find My Past, well, they were years away from launching Genealogy was gaining a lot of popularity back in 2000, and David Frixell, who's the founding editorial director of Family Tree Magazine, was convinced that there were no signs of it slowing down. And genealogy certainly hasn't. But with all the advances and technological changes, the core of good genealogy research remains the same. I am very happy to say that David Frixell is joining me right now to celebrate this 20th anniversary of Family Tree Magazine and cover some of the timeless family history tips that you'll need for good research. Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks very much for having me, Lisa. Gosh, did you envision the genealogy industry taking off as much as it did after you launched the magazine? Were, were there things that surprised you in these last 20 years? Well, I think the the most surprising thing probably has been the whole DNA phenomenon. We really didn't see that coming, that, you know, you would be able to do this at home and get results and have it all on computers and it would be used to solve crimes and all of these yeah. things that have happened, you know, since. And records were just beginning to be, you know, digitized and put online. I mean, it was a big deal in our first year or so when, you know, family search launches and, um the Ellis Island records, that was suddenly, you know, made the, made these things available to the general public. So I think, you know, we were lucky in a way in that we were sort of on the cusp of what was a lot of technological change. Um, but the initial, you know, goal was just to help people get started, to even if it meant cranking good old-fashioned microfilm, um, and to take advantage of, uh, you know, sort of those basic things that we could tell people to, uh, you know, to do to get started. And then we always tried to put it in sort of a bigger picture, so we covered things like family reunions and preserving old photos and that sort of thing, because, you know, we almost viewed it as a a family history lifestyle kind of magazine. Uh, But, of course, it's had a lot of very specific tips and, you know, zillions of website listings and uh, technological information at the same time. And I think back to 2000, you know, what all that, particularly the technological changes did was, it really made genealogy available to everybody. You didn't have to just be retired and have hours and hours and hours to do something. You could make progress in just a couple of hours on your own computer. And then the, the, all those genealogy sites, like you said, just started bringing up all these records that you need at the outset, kind of at the beginning of your research. And I think this ties into this article that you've written about these kind of 20 timeless 
tips and strategies, basically steps that people take, because now that we've opened the world of genealogy uh, to pretty much anybody who wants to get involved, um, and it's so accessible, you know, everybody needs these tips. So let's jump into them, because even somebody who's been at this for a while may hear something here that, oh, I forgot about that, or I've been overlooking that. And I think this is a great refresher, as well as wonderful for those who are new to family history. Get us started. What are some of the the first strategies that you mentioned that you think are timeless? Well, you're right, because, you know, with so much of this being so easy in a way, or maybe deceptively easy, right? Um, people think, well, I'll just click a few buttons and my genealogy will just appear like magic. You know, so <laughs> the danger is either that you get frustrated because it's not that easy, or you end up going down a wrong road at some point in your you know, in your genealogy. Right. So that's why we always say, you know, we'll start with what you know. You know, to find out what you can about your parents, your grandparents, your uncles and aunts and cousins. Get that information down and also get it from them if they're still alive while you can. Um, I mean, I've had, yeah, had a sad instance where I had plans to talk to my aunt who, you know, was the last surviving sibling, and I was going to talk to her when I went out to a genealogy convention when I was still with the magazine, and she passed away like two weeks before. And mm. so suddenly, you know, all that information that I could have gotten from her over the phone, um, you know, was uh, was gone. That's probably um, one of the so, biggest regrets that we hear from genealogists, isn't it? That we didn't yeah. ask sooner. Yeah. Um, so ask those questions. Um, and then, uh, you know, this sounds obvious, but move backward in time um, is the second tip. Uh, you know, you resist the temptation to rush or jump around because... Some, you know, you have some shiny object that attracts you, uh, and so you go chasing after that. You know, it helps to be methodical, and it helps to make a plan. So figure out what are you going to attack, uh, you know, what are you going to investigate, what are you going to try to find out, and don't try to learn everything all at once. You know, take one branch of your family and try to march backwards through time, learning as much, you know, uh, as you can. And then if you get stumped, um, ask for help. It might be from, you know, a family member. It might be from, uh, you know, a professional genealogist. I always joke about, actually, after my aunt passed away, I learned from my cousin that we had a second cousin that knew a lot about the family history. And uh, so I started pestering her over the phone. Um, and finally, one day, she just, well, it would maybe it would just be easier if I just sent you the family Bible. And like, what? You have the family Bible? <laughs> so ask for it. You never know what you might, you know, turn up. That turned out to have the clues that, you know, that I needed to get over, you know, a big roadblock. Oh, that's a great point. It's so funny. And people want to help usually. But uh, if you don't know what you're asking for, they, you know, it's just, it makes such a difference just to have those personal conversations. Right. So those are our first four. Start with what you know. Move backward in time. Make a plan, which I think is so important. Ask for help. And number five you have here is study social history. And, and you have that early on in the process. Talk about that. Well, it really helps if you can have a sense of the context in which your ancestors you know, lived or came to America. Simple example, why did so many Irish people come you know, to America in the 19th century? Well, it was the potato famine. And so if you understand those kind of things, you might understand what was driving your family, why they might have left, um, where they might have settled. Um, with my Scandinavian ancestors, you know, they sell in certain parts of the, of the Midwest. So if you're looking for them, 
you're going to have a lot better luck starting off in South Dakota or Minnesota than, you know, spending a lot of time in Florida and Georgia because that's just not where they landed initially. Um, so if you can put them in that larger context, and the, then the next tip sort of relates, which is research your ancestors' networks. And we sometimes think of that as their cluster, that as their, you know, their neighbors, their friends, their other relatives. Um, if you get stuck, sometimes you can find the the neighbor. They often they came over together. Um, so if you can't find your direct ancestor because there's something funny about the name or transcription or something, you know maybe the person who's lived next door to them moved along with them. That so often is the pattern. You know I have southern ancestors, and they they all did the same thing. They moved from Virginia to the Carolinas, to Georgia, some went on to Alabama, some went on to Mississippi, some went <laughs> up in Texas. And they all moved in, you know, you can see the same families together. Yes. And often then they end up getting married to each other. Oh, that's a great point. People just didn't live in a vacuum, did they? They, they exactly. worked together. I mean, it's, not like, it's not like today where, you know, you get a new job and you call a moving van and off you go. Right. Um, you know, going across the wilderness or uh, even just taking the boat over to America was a much more complicated Thing and you were much less likely to do it, you know, just just solo. People weren't striking out to, uh, you know, find whatever job they just found on LinkedIn. You know, it was a, <laughs> it was a much more complicated, you know, uh, procedure. And as you get to know this social history and who the players are in the lives of your ancestors, well, then you can start looking for those original records, right? Exactly, and it's important. Again, there's so many pedigree charts and family trees and so forth, and I'm getting I get notes about matches all the time, mm-hmm. those are useful, but they really should be viewed as clues. You know, what you want to look at is the records, you know, census records, uh, immigrant passenger lists, um, you know, vital records. Try to get your hands on those, um, even if it's just scanned or, uh, records that you're viewing online, um, because that's where the real information is. It's not just in hearsay or uh, some third-hand thing that someone else has copied down. You know, the next one is evaluate your sources. And that's why you should try to get those as close to the original event um, as you can. You know, so birth record is ideal. A birth mention in an obituary, well, that's, you know, a little bit farther away. Mm-hmm. So it's more likely that there might be something, you know, wrong in there. And then something's told to somebody else, you know, 20 years later, that's eh, even much more, you know, unreliable. So try to get as close to the, the, the real deal, uh, to the original event, as you possibly can. And even those original records can have mistakes, can't they? Exactly. And some of those are just human error. The, you know, the census taker, um, human memory. I mean, my uh, great-grandfather listed about four different uh, years of immigration, um, if you do the math, uh, on various census records. You know, over the years, and it's like, you know, well, which one was it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and, and people weren't as careful about dates or spellings or things like that. Or sometimes, you know, they stretch the truth a little bit. Uh, my wife has a couple of uh, sideways ancestors who uh, were twins, and uh, they they grew younger over the years um, in terms of when their birthday was. <laughs> Because Isn't that the way it's supposed to want, work? <laughs> and at one point, I think they diverged even, even though they oh, were twins. Wow. <laughs> oh, they were funny. no longer the same age. One was a little bit more wanted to shave the years off than the other one. <laughs> 
Okay, so, so that's what we say. You know, number nine is watch for data errors and impossibilities. Exactly. Um, they, they may be, you know, human error um, or, you know, those impossibilities. When people have the same names, you know, you may go along thinking so-and-so is from one generation. It's actually the child or the parent of the person that you're looking for, but they have the same you know, names. So suddenly you find out that they're, you know, were uh, born after they're supposed to have died. Right, (laughs) right. These things, uh, you know, these sort of errors will crop up all the time. Okay, so that was number five was study social history. Six was research your ancestors' networks. Seven, seek the original records. Eight was evaluate your sources. Nine, watching for the data errors and impossibilities. Just, you know, we get excited. And so sometimes we can jumble people together and we have to watch for our errors and the record errors. And that brings us to number 10, which you have use records as stepping stones. What do you mean by that? Well, you, usually one kind of record, you know, the information that you find that you can use to find then the next you know, set of records, whether it's the country of origin, date of naturalization. You know, again, uh, like my great grandfather, you may not be able to trust that date because he may be misremembering, but it's a start. And at least I knew you know, what country he came from. Um, military service records, you can often jump to, if the census says, yes, it's a veteran, then, well, I'll go and look for the military service records. The number of years married on the census, for example, um, will lead you to, okay, I better go look for those marriage records. So think with each new factoid you discover, where else can I learn, use that information to find, uh, you know, the next clue, the next stepping stone along the, you know, heading into the past. And you mentioned in 11 to expand the definition of records. Right. I mean, we, you think of sort of the basics like census, vital records, and so forth. There are things like, you know, newspapers, school records, written about land records in the past. Um, anything, anywhere where you're in an ancestor may have left some sort of written trace. So, uh, you know, old letters even, uh, things that are, you know, maybe up in the attic. Um, may have information that, you know, is exactly the beast that you're looking for that'll, you know, lead you on to the next step. See, now right there, we've already covered the first nearly a dozen steps, and it really lays a great foundation. And then, David, you take the second half of the article, you're moving into then kind of where we all end up, which is, we got to cite these sources, we have to get things organized, we got to make sure we've got things backed up. There's a lot of ongoing work for the genealogist, isn't there? Absolutely. And it, it all pays off in the end. If you, you know, are organized, um, if you have a good filing system, if you remember to cite your sources so that when you go back later, you think, how do I know that Joe was his brother? I, I have no idea. I can't, you know, <laughs> well, if, if you've, if you've uh, done that, then you know, well, that's why I know he was born in Dublin, Ohio or whatever, you know, um, because you, you want to be able to go back and, and check. And then, of course, once you've if you're entering it in, you know, your family tree software or something, make sure to back that everything up, you know, keep copies of things, mm-hmm. um, you know, assume the worst uh, in this technological age so that you don't lose all that hard work that you've, you know, been doing. Absolutely. Well, this is a wonderful article. I think it's a great uh, beginner and refresher for those of us who've been at it for a while. It's called The Roaring Twenties. And all of you listening will find this article in the January-February issue uh, 2020 of Family Tree Magazine. And David, you've had some exciting news uh, starting with 2020. You have a brand new book, don't you? 
Yes, it just came out. It's the uh, Family Tree Guide to uh, Scandinavian Genealogy, and uh, it's uh, from Penguin Random House, and uh, they've taken over the publishing the Family Tree books, so it, it has all the same kind of things that you would expect, uh, you know, from Family Tree magazine, and uh, it's really for people who have Scandinavian, Swedish, Norwegian, Danish ancestors um, of any level of experience, from just getting started to you know, I've done a lot of work on it, and then I'm stumped. So I'll tell you how to get unstumped. Love it. Well, I know you and I are going to be recording an interview for the Genealogy Gems podcast, which I host over at my website. And we're going to dig in depth into a lot of the strategies from the books. I'm excited about that. If those of you listening have Scandinavian heritage, you might want to check out uh, the Genealogy Gems podcast for that episode. That should be coming out, I think, in uh, January of 2020. So, David, thank you so much. And hey, congratulations on helping to launch and be the driving force behind Family Tree Magazine back in 2000. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. In today's DNA Deconstructed segment, I've invited your DNA guide, Diane Southern, back to the show to talk about the latest happenings with GEDmatch. Welcome back, Diane. Thanks, Lisa. Pleasure to be here. Hey, Diane, I thought before we talk about some of the most recent changes with GEDmatch, let's go back to the beginning in case anybody's maybe not that familiar with them. Uh, what is GEDmatch and when did it launch? Well, I think that's a great idea because I think GEDmatch has kind of become a buzzword. And I yeah. think while there are a lot of people in the industry who've been involved since the beginning and they know all about it, I think most people actually have no idea what GEDmatch <laughs> is or what its function is or I think people now get a, an email from a cousin who's really involved in genetic genealogy, and they say, the Jed match, and they're like, okay, you must know what you're talking about. I'll <laughs> do whatever you say, but they have no idea. And that's kind of fast-forwarding now that we're having all these changes going on with Jed match. That's what I think is the most um, pr- pressing in my mind is to educate people. What is this site, and do you need to be there? And if you are, then what does that mean for you? So mm-hmm. thanks for taking us back to the beginning. Yeah. It's, like, it's a good place to start. Okay, so originally when autosomal DNA testing first became available, it was first offered by testing company 23andMe. So they were the only company doing it. So if you had it done, you were there, right? But not too long into that um, run, we had the addition of family tree DNA and then ancestry. And now we have my heritage and living DNA. And so the purpose of GEDmatch initially was, hey, I you know have a cousin who's tested at Family Tree DNA, but I've tested at 23andMe, and the test is expensive, and I don't want to go test at multiple companies. This was back when it was, you know, three or $400 to take an autosomal DNA test. So it, it became imperative that we have something else, and GEDmatch filled that hole, and they did it beautifully. They allowed anyone who's tested at any company to dump their data into GEDmatch, and you could compare with your cousins. So it was free. There were free tools, um, and and it was wonderful, and it was a really filling a really big need in the community. It was really kind of a grassroots thing, wasn't it? Oh, for sure. It was a guy, Curtis Rogers, who was like, hey, I want to be able to do this. I have the skill and the technology to make this possible for myself, so why not make it possible for everyone else? It was incredible. It was really a wonderful service for genetic genealogy. So not too too much into that really great purpose, the testing companies uh, became more competitive. And so, for example, Family Tree DNA saw 
ancestry taking a lot of the market share, I think, and they were like, ah, oh, what are we going to do? And so they started offering essentially the same service that JetMatch was offering. And they said, hey, you tested ancestry? No problem. Bring your data here and we'll put it into our database for free. And you can match with other people. This was a huge breakthrough and actually a pretty good idea because once you got into Family Tree DNA, Family Tree DNA was offering other services like wire mitochondrial DNA testing, and they would charge you for that. And so it, it seemed like a really, really good idea. And so when my heritage came on the scene, this was a precedent kind of already set by Family Tree DNA that you could upload your data for free. My heritage was like, you know what, we're way behind in this. We need a database and we need it fast. So let's offer to let anybody join our database for free. And again, no matter where you were tested, you give your data to MyHeritage, they build their database, you get free access, it's a win-win. So this became a norm. So we call the, the taking of your data from one company to another transferring. So as transferring became a norm and as DNA testing prices came down, GEDmatch became less important, less necessary. Because most people who've taken a DNA test have tested either at 23andMe or at Ancestry. They're the two biggest databases. If those people are savvy enough to know how to transfer their data, they've probably transferred to MyHeritage or to Family Tree DNA. And then you don't need GEDmatch. GEDmatch no longer is a place where you can go to find new matches. So... In the last several years, it has become less important for genetic genealogy than it was initially. And, and then it became a place where you could go to get different kinds of analysis tools. So kind of true to its form, Curtis, the founder of GEDmatch, looked around and there were some you know, genetic genealogists who really wanted some advanced tools. And he thought, I can do that. And so he created these advanced tools and made them part of what he calls tier one access. So you had to pay for it at GEDmatch. It was no longer part of the free tools, but you could pay to have access to some of these more advanced tools. So that became, you know, important, an important service that GEDmatch was providing, these tools that testing companies weren't going to invest in. So it was serving that purpose, but now to a much, much, much smaller portion of the community. So for most people, the average genetic genealogist, you didn't need GEDmatch anymore because it wasn't providing you access to new matches because most people were testing, say, at Ancestry or 23andMe. They were transferring for free into Family Tree DNA and into MyHeritage, and now you had access to basically everybody who had tested Right. If they were savvy enough to get it into GEDmatch, then they certainly had the, the wherewithal to be able to get it into the other services as well. So that makes total sense. Exactly. Now, I remember it was not too long ago that the case of the Golden State Killer in California, that really thrust GEDmatch into the spotlight, kind of helped change the way people were thinking about sharing their data and all that. And it really put them out in the forefront. And my guess is maybe that in some way has led to the recent merger. So bring us up to speed to what the impact was of that case and the notoriety it brought to GEDmatch and where they are today. Right. So in 2018, in April, was the the break in this case. So it became um, public knowledge, I guess, that a law enforcement agency had used the GEDmatch database 
in order to use genetic genealogy techniques to identify the Golden State Killer. And it's important to note that Jedmatch itself didn't say, like, spit out his name. Like, that's not how genetic genealogy and, and criminology works, right? They had DNA from a crime scene. They put that DNA into Jedmatch and found matches. They found third cousin matches, mostly. And then it was a lot of work. They had to do a lot of genealogy to take that pool of cousins and bring them down into a a suspect. And at that point, when they finally have suspects in mind, then they go and do another DNA test. So they followed around this guy and, and picked up a cup that he had discarded, which is a totally legal thing to do. Mm-hmm. And they tested that DNA and that DNA matched the DNA at the crime scene. And that is how he was arrested. So the genetic genealogy part is just a lead. It's, it's not grounds for arrest. It's just a lead that takes them to the person where they actually get DNA from the person that's compared to the crime scene. And that's how you get a warrant for someone's arrest. Like you said, it just shoved Jedmatch into the limelight. And now everybody knew their name, not just this little band of genetic genealogists. And they became, you know, the company or the database associated with helping law enforcement. And as soon as that case broke, there was a clamoring of, of investigators to find out about this technology and learn how to use it in their own cases. And quickly, with the help of Parabon Nanolabs and CC Moore, um, tens like i think there were 60 cases solved in the first year um that through genetic genealogy which was an incredible feat uh but it came at an expense um you know like i was saying jedmatch was created by a an enterprising techie guy and he put it out there for free for people to use and the level of privacy and security that he was able to provide were were not huge he's not you know, a company. He's right. just a guy. And so it, it raised a lot of concerns about how secure that data was and privacy and all of that. And uh, a lot of decisions were made or had to be made by Curtis uh, about the future of Jedmatch, you know, and, and he did the best that he could, I think. But there were, there was definitely a, a polarization in the genetic genealogy community about this issue. And um, it was it was difficult to, to navigate for many people to figure out what do you think, what should happen. And, you know, ultimately, you know, Curtis had to make his own decision. Right. And that brings us fast forward to December of 2019, which is we're at the very last week of that month. And a lot has happened. Verigen is now in the picture. So tell us about the merger. Right. So, so. I'm sure that this is not the first company, Verigen, is not the first company who's approached Deadmatch about a buyout. I, right. I know that, you know, lots of companies became very interested in Deadmatch very quickly. So we did get an email as users of Deadmatch um, on December 9th from Curtis himself trying to explain why he chose Verigen as the company. Basically, he liked them. He liked all the promises that he felt they would keep, um, namely that it would remain free the tools that are available to genealogists would still remain available and remain free, that the tier one tools I was telling you about for the fancy genetic genealogists would remain affordable. So those were things that were important to him as the founder. Um, also, that became important was the uh, security, like I was saying, and Verigen 
is a real company and a forensic company, and they presumably know a little bit more about how to keep data secure and can uh, and protection to GEDmatch users. So is Verigin like a Parabon? Is that their, their yeah, work? Mm-hmm. Yep. They're a forensic DNA testing company. Got it. So um, they're going to be working with law enforcement and definitely, still running yeah. things through the database and all that. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So at each, each of these checkpoints along the way, you as a genetic genealogist, as a user of GEDmatch, have had an opportunity to voice what you want. Um, you've always had control of your data. At any point when you've been uncomfortable with the decisions that GEDmatch has made, you can go in and delete your data. You can always do that. You're totally in control. And they don't keep anything. You know, they delete. You say, I'm done. It's gone. Um, so there's been lots of checkpoints. When the Golden State Killer first broke, you could have gone in and deleted your data and said, you know what, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, when GEDmatch was involved in a case of assault in early 2019 that went against its terms and conditions. And at that point, if you were uncomfortable with GEDmatch's decisions, you could go in and delete your data. In May, because of pressure from that case, um, GEDmatch actually opted everyone out of law enforcement. Law enforcement had access to about 3 million people who were in GEDmatch. But in May of 2019, GEDmatch flipped the switch and everyone was opted out. And you had to go back into GEDmatch and opt yourself in. So that that was the, the decision point that they were hoping everybody would make on their own, but kind of were people didn't know and a lot of people have uploaded data for other people and maybe weren't doing a good job communicating to them. So they, they opted everybody out. So now if you haven't ever gone back into GEDmatch since May of 2019, you're opted out. You're, you know, Verigen won't be able to use your data. You know, it, it's not part of the law enforcement database. Do you have any sense how that changed the size of the pool? uh, Now, it's back up to, I think it's approaching 1 million now. Okay, so they're at about, um, they lost been about a, two-thirds so far. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, and there's been, a, you know, a lot of a campaigning on both sides. People saying, don't go back to Jedmatch, and people saying, do go back to Jedmatch. Um, so you'll, you'll see that both ways. But I think, um, you know, it, it changes things. It changes because Jedmatch was a genealogy database, and, you know, as much as they're saying it still is, and it, it is. It's available to genealogists. It's mm-hmm. now owned by a forensic company. That that fundamentally changes things to me. And I think it's just a really good reminder to us that all of our companies are companies. And they yes. have to do what they think is best. It's not like they're not going to think about you as their customer. But they have control. And so you have to stay up on things. I mean, I've been in the industry 20 years, and I've seen companies fold. And I think most people have been in the industry five years and they haven't seen anybody fold. And so they don't realize that data that's there today could be gone tomorrow. And exactly. that's a very good reason why uh, maybe that the lesson from this is that wherever you have your DNA data, this is a good time to learn how to get it exported and make sure that you have your own raw data so that uh, it, if things change, because I think what you've really made the case is, is that things will guarantee to be changed. And it's interesting. I don't hear a lot about this, but you know, it, we've seen that the forensic community all of a sudden saw a use and got really interested. But in my opinion, that's the tip of the iceberg. We can't even begin to predict who else might see 
a potential value of that data for a totally different purpose. So to me, that guarantees the possibility of change into the future. And uh, we appreciate so much you coming and keeping us up to date here on Family Tree Magazine, because uh, that really makes a difference for everybody who wants to use it for genealogy. Thank you so much, Diane. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for bringing these issues out. It's important that people think about it and understand what their choices are and what their options are and that we're spreading the word. Exactly. Awesome. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. It's a new year. And if you're going to hold a family reunion this summer, hey, it's probably time to start planning right now. So in this episode's Best Genealogy Website segment, I've invited Sunny Morton to the show, and she's going to talk about the top tech tools for family reunions. And these all come from her new article. Uh, It's in the January issue of Family Tree Magazine. It's called Coming Together. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Sunny, it's always great to have you here. And you have gone out and tackled a big topic that everybody I think at some point runs into, which is putting on a family reunion or being part of one or trying to help organize. So I'd love to dig into some of these websites and tools that you've come up with. Now, you've got in this article tech tools and websites for pretty much all of the elements of family reunion planning. When it comes to inviting people, we're in a new tech age. So what do you recommend for inviting your relatives to the family reunion? Well, Lisa, first, I will say that some of us are in a new tech age. (laughs) Some of us are not. So I, you know, I like to think of communicating with everyone as um, I do need to reach out multiple directions. Some people are not online. They've just never communicated online. Some people are so over Facebook. <laughs> like uh-huh. They've been there, they've done that, they've moved on to other platforms. Um, and so you can't make assumptions about where your relatives are on this whole three-dimensional spectrum of online communication. But I think it Facebook is often a safe place to start to reach out to your family members that you might already be connected with. And it's an easy thing to do to go into their friends lists and look for that your shared relatives that should be part of this that maybe you just never ended up friending yourself. So Facebook is a great place to start with a Facebook invitation by reaching out through Facebook Messenger to start a conversation or to let a, a large mass of the people or a, a majority a, of the people on your list know about your gathering, but it's not, don't stop at Facebook. It's not, it's right. not the, right. Not everybody is there and that's okay. And you could either say, well, we're, if you're not on Facebook, we could just, we're just not even going to bother because, you know, <laughs> right. And that, you know, that might leave out the, the annoying person that you really hope wouldn't come anyway, but that's not the family spirit of things. Absolutely. And Facebook offers you that ability to create an event you know, so it's not just sending out the invitations, but it's the details can be there. You can have a little video that talks about last year. You can have, you know, updates to kind of help build momentum too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I I once had to organize an entire family reunion with people coming in from several states. I organized almost the whole thing on Facebook so that we could say, okay, we've identified the ones who aren't on Facebook, and these are the point people who will communicate with them from Facebook. But yes. the primary... The primary way of communicating will be our Facebook event. And like you said, it's a great place to put teasers. Like, okay, this is the place we're all going to go miniature golfing. Doesn't it look fun? Right. Like, 
post a picture of it to get people excited to come to um to share like okay i now have an eight-year-old who's really into legos okay let's talk about other second cousins who might like we should we set up a little room for is there enough of a group who wants minecraft or who would really enjoy a crafting table let's help the the youngest generation get to know each other because they're not going to know any of these young kids running around but if they knew ahead of time who they were they could get excited that there's someone else there who shares their same interests. So Facebook is really powerful in that respect that you can do a lot of advanced prep and planning and hype and then sharing during the event. I loved like a a reunion that we hosted. We had a contest and said, okay, whoever posts the most pictures and makes everybody else who is not here, makes them sad that they weren't here. (laughs) (laughs) So hype the event during the event because Mm -hmm. it lets everybody else participate from afar and it also reminds them that maybe they would want to try harder to come next time if it's just not something they prioritize. So that's like that. There, and then afterward, of course, you can post all kinds of pictures. Like everybody's going to want the big group picture. So we don't need to have 50 people with their cameras up there right, right. to take the picture. Right. Let's just have one photographer and then we'll share it all. So there's a like Facebook does have a lot of power. But there's a couple other um tools that I mentioned in the article. And one is Evite, which I think a lot of us have used before, whether we've sent out invitations using Evite electronically, or whether we've received them. It's a very common and free site, if you just use the free tools, Uh um, to send out email invitations. So if your relatives hear that, like, oh, I'm not on Facebook, so you put a Facebook event there, you, yeah, you can invite them by email, but they might respond better if you just send out something that is totally uh, based on their email response. So Evite is a really good option for that, and there's the, that URL is in the article. And then, but there are some people who just don't email, who just are off the grid, um, technologically speaking. And some, these are some of our most valued and cherished relatives sometimes. So I mentioned another site called Paperless Post, which will, yes, you can do, you can design your electronic invitations that you email out to people. But the, for a fee, they will also design a print version of that invitation and mail it for you. Like oh, how nice. is that possible? Yeah. So that those, those six people or the eight people that you got um, their snail mail addresses for that can that can be and it's a classy way. Like that's that's mm-hmm. also oftentimes our relatives who are not online at all appreciate a classy invite. Yeah, something with some thought in it. That's a wonderful idea. Yeah. But let's get to the important stuff: the food. <laughs> the food. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's everybody's favorite part of the family reunion. So. Which websites, and there really are, you've got several of them in here. Which ones do you like that can help us figure out the food? Okay, so one of the things I liked about writing this article is that I went to, I was thinking, okay, when I break it down, I might not even think about this as a family reunion tool, but I, because I use it in other parts of my life. And so what are some of the tools that I use in other parts of my life that are helpful when I plan that family reunion? And figuring out the food is one of them. I can't tell you how many big family group dinners or church suppers or brunch with friends or whatever. I have baby showers, those kinds of things that I have planned over the years. 
so how could I possibly have planned um, any of these wonderful events before there were these fantastic online tools? And they do lots of different things. For reunion food, I, I mean, the food can make or break it, right, Lisa? Yeah. It really does. It's got to be right. You have to have good food. And you ha- it has to appeal to a wide variety of people. Some of them you might not know their dietary needs or their preferences. Um, and some of them you might know more than you want to about it. Um, but it also, you have to get the quantity right. Because running out of food is bad. But having, you know, like six big Costco bins of whatever left is also not what you want to have. So portion size is also important. So the a lot of the sites that I recommend um, help calculate how much food you actually need to provide and the the calculate this food um, website that I offered. I really like because it's not just um, portion size, but it's also giving you menu ideas because you're like, well, I don't even know what I should serve for lunch for 40 people who all like to eat like this, right? So maybe it's different than the way you normally eat. So there are lots of recipe ideas there. But honestly, um, I start most of my menu searches by on Pinterest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because good idea. If big group, I mean, if you just enter, if you go to Pinterest and you just do a search like family reu- reunion or feeding a crowd or things like that, you're going to get all kinds of um, eye candy menu suggestions that I think it makes it really inspiring and more fun to be like, oh, it takes the stress out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could totally have that. And it would I, I can see how they've got it all set up and we could do a ver- our own version of this. And so Pinterest is really great for inspiring um, your menu ideas and then pointing you toward good recipes. And then a couple of these other tools like Calculate This Food and the Whole Foods Market Servings Planner that I mentioned, which is really good for celebratory types of themes like holiday events. It's more geared toward that than Family Reunion, but it's got a really some really great stuff on it. Like those can help you really figure out how much you need to plan for. And then those so Potluck Hub is another tool that I recommended, but it's one that you have to get right because it's no good to have an app for planning your potluck if nobody else is going to download the app. Ah, So (laughs) it has to be the right group. So if you're pretty confident that your group is going to be savvy and if you say download this app, they won't say, I don't know, really, I I have to find my password. Like, so if, (laughs) if that's your, if that's your, your audience, then that's not going to, it's going to make them uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and it's not going to, it's not going to fly. But if you've got people who that's part of their social language and their everyday language is, oh yeah, let's just do it on an app and then we can. Um, we can um, plan who is bringing what foods, then Potluck Hub is a great place to 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 make all of those assignments. Well, as you mentioned, um, th- it's really nice when you can use apps for a, a family reunion event that you're going to use in the rest of your life throughout the year. I mean, I am all for, people will say, you know, well, how do you learn so much tech? Because I find, I try to focus on tech that, like you say, serves different parts of your life. So you're not constantly learning something new and getting one more app, but you're starting to uh, use tools that you can use for other stuff, which is great. And and maybe if everybody isn't willing to do Potluck Hub as one more app, you can take a quick inventory. And if they've all got Dropbox, 
You could throw your little planner in Dropbox. So there's always an alternative. But this article is really packed with these ideas. And, And if you are listening, and you would like some more great websites, maybe for a family reunion, maybe just for the next uh, holiday or the family get together, whatever you've got going on. There's a lot of good stuff here that's going to help you out. Again, Sunny's article is called Coming Together. We like when family comes together. It's in the January and February 2020 issue of Family Tree Magazine. And before I let you go, Sunny, I understand you've had some exciting things happening in your world. You have a new book. Am I right? I do have a new book and it's it's gotten some lovely attention. I, I'm really excited about it because it's been my baby for a while. It's how to find your family history in U.S. church records. And so I've been diving deep into all different denominations and helping people learn how to figure out where their family went to church and find any records that might exist. I know, Lisa, you've done your own searches on this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yes, that is that is a topic that's really on my mind. And it may be that a, a couple of church record finds might get discussed at our next family reunion, whether they want it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, it's a great book. And I think it's one that's definitely have been has been needed, you know, something that's very, very comprehensive. So uh, we'll all keep an eye out for that. And I believe they can get that on Amazon. Is that correct? Yes, they can. It's from Genealogical Publishing Company, and it is available on their website, but it's also on Amazon. So wherever you like to shop. Wonderful. Sunny Morton, thank you so much. It's always good to talk to you, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me for this January 2020 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. You'll find the notes and links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes for this episode at familytreemagazine.com slash podcasts. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and of course, I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where we are celebrating the 10th anniversary of our Genealogy Gems podcast app, which you can download from your favorite app store. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. Music